Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last episode, we talked to Leslie Berlin, a historian who has chronicled the birth of Silicon Valley. This week, we hear from an eminent British scientist who argues that the risks posed to the survival of our civilization by environmental damage and the rapid adoption of new technologies merit far greater attention than they're currently receiving. Many of us think that we ought to value the life chances of a baby born today as much as our own. And if you take that view, then you would feel it was worth paying a premium now to remove a risk from people at the end of a century. That was the voice of leading astrophysicist Professor Martin Rees. He spoke to me recently at the Royal Society in London, where he was previously president. And I apologise for the sound quality of this interview, where the occasional crackle and traffic noise can be heard. Martin, I wondered if we could start by talking about where we are in our stage of evolution. Our sun has been in existence for about 4.5 billion years. You estimate that it has about another 6 billion years to run. Where are we in the stage of evolution? How are we doing so far? Well, astronomers, of course, have a long perspective. And as you say, we can trace events on Earth back to its formation 4.5 billion years ago. We think life started at least 3.5 billion years ago and has evolved by Darwinian selection to the wonderful biosphere we see around us. And this has happened over that long expanse of time. Most people are aware of that, unless they are creationists or part of the Muslim world. But I think even those who are happy with evolution somehow tend to think that we humans are the culmination. It's all led to us. And no astronomer can believe that, because as astronomers we know, as you just mentioned, that the sun has another six billion years before it dies and blows up and uh, engulfs the inner planets, and the universe itself may go on still longer. Indeed, to quote Woody Allen, eternity is very long, especially towards the end. So we are probably not even the halfway stage in the emergence of complexity, but we are at a very special stage. Do you think there is a real risk to our society at the moment from the complexity of our societies? Well, I would say that this century is the first in the 45 million centuries of Earth's history where one species, namely ours, has the future of the planet in its hands. We could transform the planet and lead to a bright post-human future, as it were, or we could, through um, error or miscalculation of some kind, or through some ecological disaster, foreclose all those possibilities that would otherwise lead to further evolution in the succeeding billions of years. And a few years ago you wrote a book on this subject which was rather gloomy on this front. Yes, well, I wrote a book really highlighting the possibility of ecological disasters, but more importantly, highlighting the fact that powerful technology empowers small groups or even individuals. The global village will now have its village idiots and they'll have a global range, and that's a big problem to deal with. So I was rather gloomy about those threats. I entitled the book Our Final Century with a question mark. The publishers cut out the question mark, which made it more gloomy than even I intended. But then the Americans, when they published the book, they changed the title to Our Final Hour, I guess because Americans like instant gratification and the reverse. You've also been instrumental in setting up the Centre for the Study of Existential Risks at Cambridge. What do you do at this centre? 
Well, we set this up, it's a small group, which has been going for two or three years, with about ten researchers, and I think the motive really was that compared to the very intensive study of routine risk, you know, carcinogens in food, low radiation doses, and things like that, there's not much study of these potentially catastrophic risks stemming from uh, humanity's heavy footprint on the planet or from new technology. These are ultra-high consequence events which, even if they have low probability, are worth a bit more attention. And Cambridge, I think many people would agree, is the number one scientific university in Europe, and I felt we really owed it to use our convening power to do what we could to try and address some of these issues. Of course, no scientist can make reliable forecasts, but if we can convene a group of the best scientists, then I think they can be helpful in deciding which of these long-term threats can be dismissed as science fiction and which are sufficiently credible that we ought to try and do something to minimise them. You say that academics don't spend much time thinking about this, but there's a similar institute in Oxford and there's another one that was founded in MIT, I think. Well, that's right. There are only three or four little groups which are thinking about these global threats compared to the thousands and even millions who are thinking about small threats. So I personally think that these risks are very much understudied and I feel that even if we can, by our recommendations, reduce the probability of one of these events by one part in 10,000, the stakes are so high that we'll have more than earned our keep. Right. Well, let's go through the checklist of potential catastrophe, as it were. How would you rank the biggest existential risks to mankind at the moment? Well, I think there are really two classes. The first class is the kind of risk that we are imposing collectively because of our ever heavier footprint on the planet, because there are more of us each more demanding of energy and resources. And, of course, this leads to familiar trends like uh, global warming, but also the risk of loss of um, biodiversity and the possibility of other tipping points. The second class of threats are those that stem from technologies like biotech and cybertech and AI. And the point here is that these are changing so fast that it's not clear how well we can cope with them. And also they're having the effect of empowering small groups of individuals with the ability to cause some sort of cascading and even global catastrophe. Well, let's start with the climate change debate. It's an extraordinarily hard threat for people to get their head around, in a way, isn't it? I mean, you, in one of your lectures, you talk about the possibility of a meteor striking Earth in 2018. And people can conceptualise that as a risk, and we would surely do something to try to minimise the risk of that happening. But something so diffuse, so global, is very hard to energise people to take this seriously. Do you think we have actually done quite a good job of now prioritising this as a big existential risk and are doing something significant to combat it? Well, I think it's a bit higher on the agenda, but there is, of course, a severe problem in getting politicians to address it because their focus is on the parochial national and the short term. And climate change is something whose rate is uncertain and whose main downsides are going to be many decades ahead of us. And it's very hard to get politicians to persuade the public or persuade themselves that we need to make any sacrifice today in order to remove a risk from future generations. I think there are two points which are important here. One is that a lot of the debate about climate policy, which is characteristically deniers and uh, those who take it seriously, is not about the science. It's about the economics and the ethics and the discount rate 
Born Lomberg's Copenhagen Consensus, which is a group of economists, downplayed the importance of addressing climate change compared to shorter-term ways of helping the world's poor. That's because they apply a sort of uh, 5% discount rate to future events and therefore write off what happens beyond 2050. On the other hand, many of us think that that's not appropriate in this context and we ought to value the life chances of a baby born today as much as our own. And if you take that view, then you would feel it was worth paying a premium now to remove a risk from people at the end of a century. And I think that's what underlies the policies which our government and others are trying to follow. But it is hard to get the um, public to accept that. That's why one of the most encouraging developments, I think, in the last couple of years, which was an outgrowth of the Paris Conference in December 2015, was to try and incentivize a higher rate of R&D into ways of getting clean energy. This is a win-win situation because it's high-tech and benefits us all, but the faster the R&D proceeds, the quicker the cost will run down. So, for instance, India, where clearly they need to have more energy generation so as not to depend on smoky stoves, burning wood and dung, will be able to uh, leapfrog directly to clean energy and not put on coal-fired power stations. So you were talking earlier about some of the potentially dark sides of technology, but you see this as a potentially very bright side. What kind of technologies do you think will make a difference? Well, I mean, it's hard to pick winners, but obviously we've seen the development in solar, and I think, importantly, one needs to develop storage, better batteries, etc., and smart grids, and all these technologies go together. But I think there are tremendous opportunities, and the amount of R&D is far below the amount spent on defence R&D or medical R&D, and I think it should be more closely comparable. And I think this would get broad consensus. In fact, to tell you an anecdote, I was involved in this campaign before the Paris conference and the BBC wanted me to uh, go on one of their discussion programmes. And of course, they always want to have someone to rubbish you uh, and balance you. And they asked Lomberg to come on. And of course, as I predicted, but they didn't, he agreed 100% with me. And he also, although typecast as a climate denier, is all in favour these technological developments. So in the grand scheme of things, do you think we stand a reasonable chance of avoiding climate catastrophe? Well, of course, it depends on the big uncertainty, which is the so-called climate sensitivity. We know that the CO2 is a greenhouse gas, but what we don't know is the feedback effects, and we don't know whether we will cross tipping points, and so we don't know how much time we've got. That's the uncertainty. So this may happen soon enough, it may not. We need to keep thinking about that one then, for sure. And we need better modelling, and of course, 20 years from now, we will have a better theory of climate change, better computer models, and of course, a longer time base of data. Right, but what about the risk of cyber warfare, or the cyber threats? How serious should we take that? Well, very seriously. I think already this is a big concern. It's not futuristic. We've already seen very large-scale effects caused just by small groups of students and kids and, uh, and hackers. And this is a, an extreme example where a few people with access to um, expertise, which is widely available, can have a very serious downside. And we've already seen examples of this in the last year or two. And one of the biggest threats, which I know is taken very seriously by the American military, is a massive cyber attack on the uh, electricity grid, which could cut it out and keep it cut out. That's a really catastrophic consequence, and these sorts of things are very hard to guard against. So I would say that's already a big threat. 
Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Does that argue for trying to keep our societies relatively simple? Well, I think it probably doesn't outweigh all the benefits. There's no time in the past where we'd have like to stop technology because of all the benefits it has given us over every decade. But I think we do have to appreciate that these new threats are very difficult to deal with. And I think there are going to be two problems. One is that the technologies are understood globally. It's not just in a few countries that we think have stable governments. But also, we have to realize that to deal with them is going to really lead to a greater tension between privacy, security, and liberty. Where do you think the balance between those three should be set? Well, I think it's going to shift the balance towards loss of privacy, if nothing else, more surveillance, etc. We're already seeing this happening, and I think the public will accept it because without that, there's a big risk of clandestine plans being made just by a few people that could have catastrophic consequences. But I think this is a serious downside and a serious challenge to governance. So, I mean, one argument is that privacy has only ever been a temporary phenomenon in human history and that we're reverting to an age when there is no privacy. Does that worry you? Well, of course, for the younger generation than me, it's not a concern at all because they have personal details on Facebook open to anyone. So I think the concern about loss of privacy is something which is weaker among the younger generation than it was among older people. But that might just be because they don't realise the consequences of what they're doing. It might be, but I think uh, we, we do have to welcome the fact that people are, in a sense, watching each other, and that makes it harder for someone to do something clandestine without others being aware of it. On the other hand, of course, the downside of social media is that it's possible for someone who has extreme or very unusual opinions to find some uh, others somewhere around the world who share their opinions and then be in an echo chamber. This is a well-known downside and this is a difference from traditional societies where even if you were crazy, your neighbours weren't crazy in the same way and so there was some way of moderating your views, whereas you can now be in a social world exclusively populated by other people who share your fanaticism. What about gene editing? How much should we worry about that? Because the potential upside of that is fantastic. So how do we get the balance right? Absolutely. The upside it, it, and the it's huge. And of course, the biomedical researchers are very much aware of this. In fact, if we go back to the 1970s, there was a famous conference at Asilomar, California, in the early days of recombinant DNA research, where the community decided, in retrospect, actually overcautiously, not to pursue certain kinds of experiment. And that set of guidelines was held to because the only people involved were researchers in a few labs in Europe and North America essentially. But now there are attempts to regulate and set up guidelines for the more powerful techniques of gene editing etc. But I think there's a big difference which is that now the uh, community is far larger 
far more broadly international, and there are strong commercial pressures. So even though I think there will be guidelines established by uh, national academies and governments, the very high-powered committees discussing these things, and that's excellent news, but enforcing them globally, I think, is going to be extremely difficult. Indeed, it certainly won't be effective, because it's rather like trying to enforce the drug laws globally or the tax laws globally. And we know how unsuccessful those two endeavours have been. And in the same way, I feel that in the domain of genetics, whatever can be done will be done somewhere by someone, whether it's ethical or not, and even more worrying, whether it's safe or not. And we have to worry about changes in the germ line and releasing something which makes certain species extinct, so-called gene drive techniques and all these kind of things. So I think we do need to worry seriously about the technologies that are near term and whether they can be misused and will have downsides which may be not produced by malign intent but simply by carelessness or not understanding the consequence. Is there anything that can be done about that or not? Well, again, to sensitise people and ensure that viruses don't leak out by accident. I mean, if we take an example, in 2012, there were two groups, one in Wisconsin, one in Holland, which experimented with the influenza virus, showing it was surprisingly easy to make it more virulent and more transmissible. And they were doing this because they thought it was a good thing to stay one step ahead of natural mutations so as to design better vaccines. But on the other hand, this is dangerous technology, in the wrong hands, and of course, if one of these engineered, more dangerous viruses escapes, just as, for instance, one of the foot-and-mouth epidemics in this country was due to a virus escaping from a government lab, then, of course, this is serious. And it was therefore not surprising that the American federal government in 2014 stopped funding these so-called gain-of-function experiments. There is a trade-off there, and I think we do have to worry about the possibility that there would be just some accident. Of course, I think one upside is that I don't think any government or indeed any terrorist group of well-defined aims is going to intentionally use these techniques because bio-warfare is intrinsically unpredictable in its consequence. Let's move on to artificial intelligence. On the one hand, you've had people like Nick Bostrom at the Future of Humanity mm -hmm. Institute in Oxford warning that this is something we ought to take seriously now. On the other hand, you've got Andrew Ng, a computer scientist, arguing that worrying about superintelligence is a bit like worrying at the moment about overpopulation mm -hmm. on Mars. Which camp are you in? Well, I'm not an expert, but I've talked to quite a lot of these people, and I suppose I'm somewhere in the middle I think that for a long time we have to worry more about natural stupidity rather than artificial intelligence. But it could be, it'll happen, and therefore I think we should welcome the fact that some of the leaders, like those at DeepMind, think it's not premature to address regulations in that field in the same way as biologists have for decades felt they should regulate biotech. So I think it's important that there should be these regulations so as to minimise these risks even though these risks may be small. And, of course, AI has developed very fast. There have been false dawns in the past, but I think it's clear this is not a false dawn because it's got above a threshold where a huge amount of talent and money is going into it. So it's clearly going to develop very, very fast for at least the next decade and will have benign consequences through being able to handle large bodies of data. But obviously there are going to be some risks if it 
gets out of control, or indeed if it gets so complicated that people don't understand what happens, because if AI is used to decide on things that affect us all, like our credit rating, whether we deserve parole if we're in prison, and things of that kind, it may be that these machines will, on average, be better predictors than any human, because they can sift through a far larger amount of data through their speed of operation. So we may know that they are, in fact, on average, making better judgments than humans. But on the other hand, I think many of us would nonetheless feel that if something is done which is damaging to us, we are entitled to an explanation which we can understand. And I think it's going to be a real dilemma. And, in fact, there was a meeting of senior lawyers here in the Royal Society just very recently to address these issues about what happens if we have these algorithms which are making decisions for us and which can't explain themselves to a human. To what extent do you think we should trust these systems? Because clearly they're dependent on the data that we put into them, the design of the algorithm itself, and the explainability of the outcome. Do you think we have to have an explainability function, as it were, in all of these systems? Or is that just unrealistic? Well, it may be unrealistic, but I think it's unfortunate in the case when a human being's fate depends on it. Because I don't think it's fair that a human being's fate should depend on some mysterious algorithm because there may be hidden biases in it, but there may be some weakness. Because, to take an example, in the AlphaGo context, when the machine learnt by playing against itself, there were certain positions which it handled rather badly. That was a weakness which it would never discover by playing against itself because both sides of the simulated game had the same weakness. So there may be similar contexts where, despite being extremely effective in general, there is some hidden weakness which can't be discovered. And that's why, as Kasparov said in a different context, a human plus a machine can be more effective than either separately. And I think there is a risk that even if a machine is very effective in general, it may have some blind spots which are very hard to identify and we don't want our fate to depend on them. But there are clearly contexts and the examples often quoted is radiology where a machine can look in one day at 100,000 x-rays of lungs to see who's got lung cancer and therefore develop better judgment than the average human radiologist. So there are lots of ways when they can, but I think there's got to be some sort of supervision. Now, you've written that we may be moving towards a post-human era. Can you expand on your thinking on that? What did you mean by that? Well, I suppose I'm suspecting that, if not within decades, certainly within a few centuries, unless we have this disaster setback this century, there will be human-level machines. And I think once that happens, then, of course, they will continue to evolve, and they will evolve on a technological timescale which is much faster than the winning selection. So there'll be evolution, which is sort of a genuine intelligent design. And when I said earlier that the Earth's only halfway through its life, things in the second half will happen far faster because the evolution is going to be on this faster timescale. If you ask me more specifically how this may happen, I've got a scenario which I'm not sure if other people accept, and it's the following. It's that I think we will try and control and restrain the use of AI and of genetic modification, etc., on the Earth for potential and ethical reasons. But I think by the end of the century, there will be some people living in space, probably on Mars. I think they will not be the standard type of NASA astronauts or ESA astronauts. I think they'll be high-risk-taking pioneers 
like Mr. Baumgartner, who fell supersonic <laughs> myalgia balloon, or like our Savannah Fight. There'd be people like that who would be prepared to go on a cut price trip to Mars, and that will be affordable by these private companies, which are run by Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. So I think by the end of the century, there'll be a community of adventurers on Mars, and they, of course, will find themselves ill-adapted to where they are, and also out of reach of any terrestrial regulators. <laughs> so I think for both those reasons, the first users of these drastic modifications through genetic modification and cyborg techniques will be people away from the Earth. And we'll cheer them on, because clearly they have every incentive to adapt themselves. And of course, they may download themselves completely to machines. And once that happens, then of course, the intelligent machines and robots don't particularly want to be on a planet at all. They don't want gravity. They might prefer to fabricate big structures on zero-g. They don't want an atmosphere. And so they will go off into the blue yonder, beyond Mars, maybe beyond the solar system completely, and this will be a huge transition, which will perhaps trigger the um, population of large parts of the cosmos by intelligences, albeit inorganic intelligences, who are in effect progeny of us on Earth. But I think that's what will happen in the long run. And of course, if they are near immortal, then they are not deterred by a very long journey in the way that humans would be, and therefore they can get to the stars. So this is really the evolution of biological intelligence into electronic intelligence. Mm -hmm. Yes, which I think we should try to control here on Earth. But once there are some crazy pioneers in space, then we cheer them on when they do it. Right. And this is the Yuval Noah Harari concept of homo deus, that we all become gods in a way because we have the ability of infinity and divinity in creating new life. Yes, well, I don't buy all his story, but I think it is clearly true that we are going to be able to create new forms of life, both biologically and by being able to understand what each part of the human genome does and being able to modify and sequence it and uh, replicate it, but also by downloading ourselves to machines which will have, in many respects, human capabilities. Whether they have consciousness, and etc., and self-awareness, or whether they're zombies, we don't know. That's a philosophical question. Going through all of these subjects, there's the common theme that technology, in a way, is outstripping the ability of societies to understand and regulate and make the best of these technologies. What do you think our collective chances are of ensuring the best outcomes and avoiding the worst? Well, I do worry, and the reason I worry is the fact that only a few people can, by error or by design, create something which is devastating on a global scale. And for that reason, I think that at the very best we will have a bumpy ride through the rest of the century. And I don't really see how we can eliminate that risk, although I hope that by uh, discussing these things we can make people mindful of the downsides and therefore more careful to ensure that innovation optimizes those things that are manifestly beneficial and is very careful about how we control those aspects which are clearly very risky. Thank you very much, Martin. That has been a highly alarming but utterly fascinating conversation. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on your favourite podcast app. And if you write a review, that will help other people find us too. Thanks for listening. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.